You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. And welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board game podcast, strangely enough, about board games. I'm here with my great friend, Mark. How are you doing, Mark? I am doing very well, thanks. How are you, Walker? Always good. This is the time of board games. This is where Gen Con is finished and the big convention in Germany is done. So all the games are coming in and we finally realize how terrible it is to live in Canada because we get nothing shipped to us and we are in the vast wasteland of nothingness. It is very unfair. All that we have to console us is a functioning democracy. It's true. And free healthcare. Moving on to what we talk about board games. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, which is Root. We're going to talk about games we played this week. We're going to talk about some news and why it doesn't matter. And this week, a topic which I've deemed the Clash of Cultures. And that's not the board game Clash of Cultures markets. It's trademark TM, Mike Walker, Clash of Cultures, new topic for today. Thank you for identifying it in the most obscure and unilluminating way possible. We had agreed on formulating the topic as the cost of upgraded components. I sent you Clash of Cultures. And then and you, you said, and you said, perfect, and we agreed. There were thumbs up involved, Walker. You degraded the sacred bond of the Facebook thumbs up. Do the, does the thumb up mean nothing to you, Walker? Did you not get my email? You have no, yes, I got your email. Well, then there you and, go. But I thought we had it. Anyway. We can disagree on the topic. So as per usual, in one of our scintillating conversations, we will have two divergent tracks where there's no actual point of connection. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be fantastic. I can't wait. So, Mark, 
Last year, we reviewed a game called Root. We did. It's this asymmetrical, multi-power, four different games going on at once type game. It all seems to work out in the end. We, I know we've both played it multiple times. What do you think of Root? It has held up very well. Some people, and I can respect this perspective, think that after you've played a faction once, that's more or less it. And I re- there are some gamers I respect who say that the game has a, a half-life because once you've played a faction, there, there's, no, there's not as much joy in learning to master it. I don't have that perspective. I enjoy playing the same factions over and over again. And I also enjoy playing different factions all the time. That's one of the reasons why we reviewed it so positively and one of the reasons why we made it the game of the year last year. I have since tried the two new factions, the Corvids and the Mole Kingdom, and I love both of them too. These are not yet released but have been made available in print and plays. And so the root system, I think, has some legs, and I am very much looking forward to seeing the final production versions and, as ever, those adorable, adorable little minis. And uh, as you say, we've been playing it intermittently ever since we reviewed it, and uh, I'm, I, I stand oh, by everything we said. I was going to say, I can't understand why people would say that. There are multiple ways to play each faction, and not only that, uh, when you're playing with all different – because there's so many different factions you can play, the way the mix you know, ends up different every time – you know, it's going to make you play different different ways every way. I don't understand. Anyway, I agree. That being said, it's being very well supported, and I'm sure there'll be many more expansions to come. And that's Root. Games we played this week. Mark, what did you play this week? After a long wait, I was able to return to Warhammer Underworlds. Skipped Night Vault entirely, bought a couple of the sets, but never had a chance to play it. All that Night Vault introduced was just a couple of things with respect to spell casting, which... I think it's a bridge too far. I don't think it needed that element. Warhammer Underworlds thrives on its simplicity and its directness. And I felt that introducing a new card type and a new stat type and a new die type and a new action type was was unnecessary. Very, very simple to apply. But I don't think it adds considerably to the game. That having been said, the Beastgrave set, or set of sets rather, that we're into now, we commented before, it was particularly appealing to me because... Every faction comes with a pre-made deck, so you can open up the box, and after assembling the minis, you can good to go, and so if you don't want to engage in deck building, especially for intro games, you don't have to. And I haven't tried one of the expansion sets yet. There's the Grimwatch, which looks very appealing to me. I love them ghouls. Uh, Apparently, these are delusional ghouls. They think they're noble knights and such while they're wielding clubs and feasting on human reins. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm actually kind of keen on that. I've always liked uh, ghouls, and I felt that, you know, ghouls' rights are sadly underrepresented. But we played with the two groups that were the in the, the base set of uh, Warhammer Underworld's Beastgrave, which is to say the, the Wild Hunt, which is a, a couple uh, a satyr, a centaur, ar- el- vaguely fawnish archers and stuff against beast persons. I, I, I don't want to say beast men, so beast persons. And taught a new player. I, I love I love Warhammer Underworlds. I didn't I hadn't played in a very long time, precisely because there's not really much of a community around here, and you and I have to marshal our two player gaming time very carefully. But I remembered all the rules, everything came back immediately, and right away in the first round, it was very clear to both me and my opponent the central genius for me, which is the restrictions and the freedom that the activation system offers for you. You can activate whoever you want every time, but once they've charged, they're done for the round. Once they've moved, they can't move again, and so you have to be super careful about positioning, which is all that I asked for in a miniatures game, really, and Warhammer Underworlds delivers that in spades. So I'm glad that the new sets, the new factions, the new groups have maintained that promise. We're now up to a very, very large number of different groups that are available in the Warhammer Underworlds line, and every time I try a new crew 
I'm always impressed. There's a little bit of duplication for some of the factions. If you want to play the Sigmarite factions, you know, the the the, the three-person blue teams, they're, they feel a little bit samey, to be honestly, even though one of them is heavily ranged, one of them is heavily magic-based, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, they feel very similar. But absent that, outside that, there's tremendous variety, and I'm looking forward to trying more of the crews that are introduced in Beastgrave. And so that was a welcome return to form to Warhammer Underworlds. So when I was looking through the Beastgrave box, it seemed to have the spell dice in it. So they're still keeping up with the spell dice? Yes, the the, the rule set is, is the same. The only other substantive change that has happened over time is they've made some rather radical decisions with respect to to deck building for tournament rules. All of the faction universal cards from the first wave are now no longer legal. You can't use any of the generic cards. And that was, I think, largely driven by balance. And I think it's largely a good one, honestly, because the same cards were showing up in most builds. And even when there were faction unique cards, I would compare them to a comparable universal card and say, well, the universal card's better, so why should I take it? So all the faction specific cards from the first wave are still legal, but the universal ones are out. And so you have to use the newer stuff. So partially, of course, this seems like a cynical cash grab. You got to buy the new stuff in order to get access to the cards, et cetera, et cetera. You can't stick with what you had in the first wave. But it's just that and the spells that are the new things in Beastgrave. And as I say, would have been happier without the introduction of the spells. I don't think it's a particularly useful way, a useful mechanism. And when you have a game as tight and as clean as Warhammer Underworlds, you really have to justify any addition to the formula. And I don't think it really pulls its own weight, but it's a minor niggle in what remains a marvelously accessible, marvelously engaging, marvelously quick, intense system. And not only that, the the engineering that goes into these snap together figures, I think, is completely underrated. Like the fact that you can open up this box, and they're not like the old school two piece. You know, here's your model, and it looks like a you know this fire hydrant. Yeah, fire hydrant, or you know, blob of look another blob. They're just as detailed as any of the Warhammer models that I've seen, and they're literally pushed together. It's it's incredible. No glue required. Minimal modeling expertise required, and they end up looking marvelous. I couldn't agree more. Mark and I got to play a couple of games of Era, Medieval Age. It's a new game by Matt Leacock, put out by Igerspiel. It is essentially a roll and write. You roll your dice, you build your buildings, and instead of, you know, physically drawing on a little, you know, sheet saying this is my fortress, these are my, mall, my walls, you get to take these really interesting uh, little pieces of plastic and put them in this little punch board and create your little city. It all fits together like this little puzzle, and that part of the game I really loved. There's this old game that I bought at my first Gen Con. I bought like four copies just trying to get, make sure I had all the pieces. It was called like Feudal or Feudum or something like that. It's one, it had the same sort of thing where you had this big punch board and it was more of a chess type thing where you punch, you know, you poked in all your knights and walls and stuff. No idea how the game played, but, but it had the same look. So I was worried at first, but this was a really fantastic game. What'd you think, Mark? Well, as I said last time, it really gives me the impression of all the things that I thought were fun when playing Tapestry. Namely, the joy at looking down and saying, oh, I've got this kind of cute city going on with some interesting-looking buildings in it. And here the buildings actually do something, and it doesn't have all those other terrible things that we didn't like in Tapestry. So the toy factor that we both praised in Tapestry is here in Era, but in but even more so, the building variety 
is better because although there's, I think overall, if you add in all the landmark buildings from Tapestry, there are more different kinds of buildings, but they all function the same way. And here you get to worry about spatial location far, far more. You have to worry about walling things off. You get to be a little clever about placement of the damage that your opponents inflict on you. There's just enough player interaction, I think. Most of it is negative, and that's okay, but it influences the economy that you try to build. If people are starting to ramp up militarily, you have to keep that in mind with respect to how you build. Anyway, I've been playing it a fair bit. I've played it solo a couple times as well, and I think that it succeeds remarkably well at that without feeling too puzzly, which is not something I particularly enjoy in, in solo games. I think it's a real winner. It's a shame about the price, but it's one of those things where it's very expensive for a light, quick game, but you really see where the money went. The components are out of this world amazing and they're fun to play with so it's got a great toy factor it's got some good trade-offs i wouldn't call it the most strategic game ever made but this is really an indication of matt leacock working on a different level he takes a genre that i really don't like namely the roll and write injects just enough interaction and just enough strategic trade-offs into it and puts it in the package with this marvelous toy and i think that era medieval age is really a strong game yeah, and we're all new players except for you, and we got two games in in the normal time we used to play one, and I thought it was fantastic. And unlike Tapestry, your little town actually looks like a town. You know, where yes. Tapestry, you're just sort of like trying to force things in. This, you're actually trying to make, you know, like a walled-in area and, you know, put the hospital near the houses, and, you know, it's, it's more of a gameplay thing, but it does make it look like you're building a city. I really, very interesting. The only minor downside I would articulate is I had slightly more of a good time when I was still exploring the system and all the buildings were more new to me. After having played now uh, about half a dozen to a dozen times, I'm not saying that the game is stale and I'm not done with the game by any stretch of the imagination, but in Era Medieval Age, once you know what all the buildings do and you're a little bit more comfortable with them and the, the effects of them are a little bit more old hat, there's less of a sense of discovery. And yes, you still get that toy factor and you still get to look down at your city, but you don't feel like you're discovering new building effects. That's the only minor niggle I have, but still, as I say, a very, very strong game and I'm looking forward to more plays of Era Medieval Age. Got to play Ghost Blitz by uh, one of the favorite designers in this podcast, Jacques Zemet, the genius behind Cockroach Poker, Ghost Blitz, Bambolio, Hamster Roll, The Man Can Do No Wrong, and he makes marvelously clever games in marvelously different genres. Ghost Blitz is the pattern recognition slash speed-grabbing game where there are these silly little objects in the middle of the table and a card gets flipped over and you have to figure out which one to grab. I find it delightfully stressful. The more popular game in the genre is Jungle Speed, at least where I when I was first getting into gaming. But Jungle Speed always seemed to result in more stress than fun, whereas Ghost Blitz, I think, is relatively perfectly calibrated. One of the Louis who sadly moved away was the utter master of Ghost Blitz, just stare you right in the eye and psych you out while moving very, very slowly. It was like the Tai Chi of Ghost Blitz. You just couldn't couldn't do anything about it. I'm not very good at Ghost Blitz. I was playing against two player two people vastly better than I, but I still managed to get a couple licks in. Great game. Highly recommended. It's one of those wonderful games that you can pull out with very young children or adults that is not a dexterity game, although I guess speed grabbing is an element of dexterity, but the pattern recognition is engaging, the components are beautiful, and every everybody's game collection needs a game or two by Jacques Zemet, as far as I'm concerned. That was Ghost Blitz. I couldn't agree more. I always talk about Men and Work and Monero almost every game. It just seems that I'm playing it awful lot lately. The group I'm with when I'm not playing with my heavy, you know, board game group, we're playing dexterity games. Anyway, we finally won a game of Monero, so that's the only reason I'm bringing it up. Woo. We've, like, gamed it out. You know, it's one of these things where, we, you know, we purposely take a penalty, you know, to make the base 
you know, larger so we can build it higher and, you know, just have to build it, you know, that extra level. We take the penalty, but, you know, up the, up the height. So it was good times were had by all. And that's Panera by Oliver Reichberg, put out by Zoc Games. I played Unmatched Battle of Legends. This is the latest thing put up by Rob Davio and his outfit, Restoration Games. It is not a reworking of an older game, except in the sense that it is sort of a redevelopment of Star Wars Epic Duels. I think there was also a Transformers version of Epic Duels as well. But the key thing that I was curious about in terms of Unmatched was, number one, it's a genre that I have endless patience for, namely a head-to-head sort of skirmish game where... You each have a fighter and you go at each other. Not entirely unlike Warhammer Underworlds, for example. Or not entirely unlike the card battling games, for which I have no end of enthusiasm. And also, it completely stole the line of sight system from Tannhauser, where every space has a color associated with it, and you have two spaces have line of sight to each other if they share a color. So you don't have to worry about any elements of corner cutting or tracing straight lines or imaginary straight lines or center to center, whatever. And it lets you build maps with very interesting little cul-de-sacs and cover points and so forth. And I will say just in the outset, credit where credit is due, uh, the fine people at Restoration Games give full credit in the rulebook to the designers and publishers of Tannhauser. So I applaud that decision that they made, uh, specifically calling out the inspiration or the originators of the system. I had a good time with Unmatched Battle of Legends. We played a couple games, and I like what they did with the characters. The base set has, you know, it's one of those standard various heroes from folklore or literature mashed against each other. There was Sinbad, the Medusa with a whole bunch of harpies, King Arthur, and Alice in Wonderland. And I really like what they did with Alice in Wonderland, honestly, because they decided to include... It wasn't just Alice, so she could grow in size or, or shrink as part of the story. But they also included everything from Jabberwocky, which I had completely forgotten is a poem buried in Alice in Wonderland. I knew that Lewis Carroll wrote it, Jabberwocky being pr- perhaps one of the most famous nonsense poems in the English language, uh, which parenthetically led to three words entering the English language that were just made up in the context of the poem. One of them being Jabberwocky to mean nonsense, another being chortle, and another being galumph. Those are words that were just made up to mean nothing in... Jabberwocky and now our English words. So congratulations, Lewis Carroll. You couldn't even do nan- nonsense right. Anyhow, so in the context of a battle game, you figure what what is what does Alice have have uh, in her favor? Well, she's got the Vorpal Sword and she's got the Jabberwocky following her around. Well, obviously. So it it was gr- that part I thought was just great. It was a wonderful little bit of inspiration and a way to round out the cast in terms of gender balance without resorting to the standard tired old. Well, let's get Joan of Arc in here again or something. Anyhow, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Very quick, very simple, very engaging. Uh, but mostly I felt like the deck was playing me. Now, with repeated plays where I learned to master a single character, maybe that would start to go away. But the problem is, it's one of those games where, and this dynamic is somewhat common, you start off with a hand of five cards, and your hand limit is seven, And but five cards is a wealth. It's a tremendous boon. This often happens in Euro games as well, where you start with some amount of money, and that amount of money is probably higher than you'll ever have ever again. You're familiar with this phenomenon? Yes, 100%. And personally, I don't really like it. I I prefer if there's an economy that ebbs and flows rather than just the sense that you start with a tremendous amount of resources and then it just gradually whittles down. It starts to feel like a siege. I'm not also a big fan of siege games. And in Unmatched, every action you do, except for a move action, costs a card. And the move action gives you a card back. So most of the time, your your hand is just going to be bleeding out. 
And sure enough, in all the games that I've played, you quickly ended up into a hand size going from, you know, two to four, if you were lucky, never to five, six, seven on, on any sort of extended basis. So it didn't feel like there was a whole lot of hand management. It was mostly just, do I have good attack cards? Well, let's attack. Do I not have good attack cards? Well, I'd better move to get cards and things like that. So while I, it, it's hard to slight a game that that's, qu that that's quick and accessible, but in when compared to other games that we really like in this sphere, like, for example, Warhammer Underworlds, which offers considerably more in terms of a long-term strategic trade-off, a lot more cleverness in terms of the action mechanism and in terms of the activation system, I, I feel like Unmatched is slightly, well, overmatched, as it were. And I am also very much like other systems, it seems to live or die based on the strength of its expansions. And I'm not personally particularly keen to go all in on another set of add-on characters for a game when I think that there, are, there are preferable versions out there. So I really liked it. If you have a chance to give it a try, I suggest it. But I think that Unmatched Battle of Legends isn't quite top tier in a very crowded space. You did get me very excited when you said Alice in Wonderland, because I'm not sure if this is just from my own demented imagination, but I remember there being an Alice character that was just completely insane, that I think she killed her twin sister and had convinced herself that, you know, her twin sister was off in this, you know, weird adventure, you know, but she was just completely... Are you talking you, about one of, the, one of the many retellings of Alice in Wonderland? Yeah, I think it, that's what I'm I saying. Think. I wasn't sure if it's out of my, like, weird, whatever I thought this up in my own head, but anyway. The Alice in Wonderland story has been retold a billion times, and so I don't know if there's a retelling of Alice in Wonderland where she has a vorpal sword and is followed around by the Jabberwocky, but that specific version I hadn't seen before. So maybe it's not novel, maybe, maybe the other... Because some people really love Alice in Wonderland and all the retellings thereof, so maybe some people are rolling their eyes and saying, get with it, Big Me. This has been something... This is something that's been done before. I had just never seen this particular take before, and I found it quite interesting. Love it. I played The Menace Among Us. This is a new kind of sort of social deduction game by Smirk and Dagger. This is once again an attempt to capture some of the interesting bits of Battlestar Galactica in a game that is A, not three hours long, and B, not terrible. And, and C, hopefully fun. Exactly. The Menace Among Us is about a derelict ship, and there are a couple of traitors for reasons unknown, and it's got this system whereby you can do a list of very, very simple actions, and one of them is to play a card face down into an action queue. And so you might be thinking, oh, well, all the good people don't play a card face down in the action queue, and then if anything bad shows up, you know who did it. Well, that's where The Menace Among Us is actually kind of clever. If fewer than half of the players play a card face down, you just add more from a random deck of noise. So there's always just enough cover for the bad guys, but they have to be careful about picking their moment. And I was actually surprised at how decent it was. It was only a 45-minute long game, but the pacing of it seemed just about perfect. I'll be talking about this again in the context of another game, but whenever there's player elimination, and there is player elimination in The Menace Among Us, you have to calibrate it perfectly. And the rulebook says, don't don't worry too much about player elimination, because chances are excellent that if somebody dies, the game is going to be over very, very soon thereafter. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. A couple of people died, but the game was, was over very sh soon thereafter. I was one of the traitors, and I got found out relatively early on, or what I thought was relatively early on, but the game was over soon thereafter as well. I was I was uh, sent to the brig. It was very ignominious, but it's because I, I made the wrong lie. I And in hindsight, I just made a bad decision, which was cool. It, I had an opportunity to hide myself well. I didn't do it, and so I got found out. And uh, that that's exactly what you want out of a game like this. A little bit of deduction, a little bit of picking your moments and picking your spots. And so everyone else at the table thought that it was pretty clever as well. I'm not sure how much depth there is to The Menace Among Us, but I'm interested to give it another try because, as I said, 
say, the arc was just about right. We were fumbling around, then we started to get an idea, and then some people were outed and some people died, and then the game ended. So uh, The Menace Among Us is a little bit front-heavy in terms of setup. It's got a lot of card separation, but you get a fair amount of character variety out of that. Different characters do different things and have different access to different cards. So more to follow on The Menace Among Us, but initial impressions are somewhat positive. Finally, the other game in question with player elimination, but the timing is almost always perfect, is Hit Z Road by Martin Wallace. This is this was in honor of Halloween. You know, it's Halloween night. You got to play a Halloween themed game. And I was looking at my collection and figuring, you know what? This is probably my whole my favorite sort of Halloween appropriate themed game. Honestly, Hit Z Road is an auction game with zombies, and there are two very salient hooks in terms of what's going on in Hit Z Road. One of them is that the graphic design is beautiful. It's a very, very compelling graphic design. The conceit is that Hit Z Road is actually a game that was made by a boy post-zombie apocalypse with scavenged scavenged components from other things. So the player order tokens, for example, one of them is a pilfered lanyard, one of them is an old healthcare ID from somebody presumably dead, and the other is a, a fast food loyalty card. And on this are scrawled various things to make them game components, and it looks great. It's so charming. It looks so different from every, from every other game out there. And despite the fact that Martin Wallace normally designs incredibly overwrought games that don't tend to deliver enough payoff, there are some exceptions. I like a fair number of Martin Wallace designs, but a lot of them I just find overdone. Hit Zero Road is marvelously simple, which leads me to the next big hook, which is that there are some tokens that you can earn over the course of the auctioning system that might or might not pay off. You might acquire the school bus, which might then be upgraded into a battle wagon, which gives you special abilities later on in the game. You might find a small child who looks a little bit suspicious, and he might run off with all your stuff, and or return with a homemade explosive and blow up all the zombies. Little little things like that with, with no rules overhead. It's just a function of, well, in the first phase of the game, I acquired this card that said, take this token, and then in the third phase of the game, maybe a card will show up that said, if you have this token, the following effect happens. And it leads to just enough level of narrative cohesion. Now, the problem is there's only one set of cards, and so there's only one set of little cues and moments like this, which is why I only try to play Hit Z Road about once every six months, because then when I pull it out again, I can tell all the players, look, I know that some of these markers pay off. I just can't remember exactly how. And <laughs> as a result, we all get to approach it from the same level. And a new player gets to look at the card that says take a token with a radiation symbol on it after wandering through an irradiated wasteland and know that it's probably no good, but I don't remember specifically how it's no good. It also has player elimination, and in this game, two people limped to the finish line and survived. One person got eliminated in the second-to-last round. One person limped limped on with a single survivor, and I, uh, the glorious victor, managed to cross the finish line with three whole survivors. Oof. Oh, yeah, I know. I was I was drowning. Starting in... the new colony. Yeah, exactly. I had nothing to worry about. I could have gone on for maybe another half round or so. <laughs> Anyhow, it is a very nice, very clean game. If you're sick to death of zombies, it's probably not going to change your mind. But the theme is so marvelously done in terms of the conceit of the components, as I said, that Hitsy Road remains eminently charming. And it is something I'm very happy to have to pull out every once in a while. And it is a, it, 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 it actually has reasonable resource management in terms of the auctions as well. So that's Hitsy Road. Love it. Like you said, graphic design, fantastic. Always talk about making my own like real-life copy of it. Who knows, one day. And those are the games that we played this week. And on to the news and why it doesn't matter. 
So Infinity Defiance has hit Kickstarter. I talked about this a while back. I saw that. I was I thought it was just going to be yet another, you know, sort of like starter set. And then I saw the word cooperative and I got kind of excited. Well, it's another co-op dungeon crawl. I was about to say excited, except for the fact that here we go again. Yeah. Yet another all versus, you know, plastic bucket fest. Well, this is metal this time, actually. Ooh, metal. Well, Infinity Minis are metal, except for Aristea, which is their other thing. But he, but, but it, Aristea is relevant because Infinity Defiance, I, I haven't played it yet i've only i only have access to the same materials that everyone else does in terms of the 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 promo stuff but honestly defiance looks like aristea but worse because aristea uses this clever dice system where they use custom dice and you can use the results of the custom dice to purchase from a menu of special effects it's called the switch system and it's layered on top of, as you well know, this sort of quasi-sport setting where positioning really matters. And you have to be very careful about balancing momentum versus attacks and all these other things. But in the context of what we have at information, uh, the the information we have access to thus far with Infinity Defiance, it's this clever dice system is being u- leveraged in the context of a dull as dirt, move forward, see a target, kill the target system, as as we've seen before. Infinity is a marvelously creative game. Aristea is a very interesting take on a sort of quasi-sports game. Infinity Defiance looks to be another bone-standard co-op dungeon crawl thing, and so honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to bite for it, especially considering that if you want to get all the gameplay content, if if you want to get access to some of the exclusive heroes, currently you have to pledge 250 euros. That's many monies, Walker. Oh my god. Now, granted, that's a lot of metal minis. And if you play the combined army in Infinity, that's you're gonna have a lot of combined army minis, and, and you'll be spoiled for choice. But quite frankly, I uh, that that doesn't appeal to me, so They've probably priced me out of the all they've definitely priced me out of the all-in pledge. And then I'm at the point where I'm thinking, well. Why would I want to get another co-op dungeon crawler, especially if I know that there are these exclusive characters I'm never going to get? So maybe they've just done me a favor and convinced me to take a take a big miss on it. Take a pass. I love Corvus Belly. I love their products. I love their sculpts, even though a lot of them are a little over-sexualized. You know, the the, the women wearing skin-tight armor and, and standing on one hip and, and, and accentuated boobs and butts and all that stuff. But I, I also in the context of Corvus Belly, it's worth repeating, they do have this marvelously pan-cultural cosmopolitan vision of the future where you have, you know, Hakislamite doctors and Yujing uh, operatives working in conjunction with Maori special forces and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that part's great. But yeah, I don't think, uh, I don't think Infinity Defiance is for me. Well, it looked promising. We'll have to see. I'm going to see if that gets, it's already funded. So I'm sure we'll uh, get a copy from somewhere. I'm talking about another Kickstarter. It's called Beyond Humanity Colonies with colonies being the big word, beyond humanities being the little words, probably because there's already many games called colonies. This is a giant sort of like plastic building thing where the you're clicking them all together and they all have circuit boards underneath and they all turn different colors and you put your tokens on the buildings and that sends a signal to the app and it all sort of processes together. Seems like a lot, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like an awful lot. Is this Forbidden Sky meets era medieval age? Uh, yeah, it just meets a simple Turing machine. <laughs> Look, if this all comes together and it works, it might be something fantastic. It also could be a Kickstarter disaster. It, it seems like it's a disaster waiting to happen. Never mind the fact that if people actually get it, just if they do actually get it, if it, you know this, there's so many pieces that fit together. Even if one doesn't work, it's going to not 
you know, sync all together. And so, you know, I, I don't know. Just seems like a headache waiting to happen. Seems like a lot. It's already funded. It has 1,175 backers, roughly. It's by a company called The Three-Headed Monster. So we'll see how that goes. And that's, uh, take a look at it. It looks very interesting. Like the LED lights, like they'll turn different colors depending on, you know, parts of the base, you know, are under attack or in trouble. Or, and like I said, if you get, you know, if you move to a certain thing, you click it on the top and the app will know that you're in that section and things will happen. And it looks promising. We'll see how it all pans out. Beyond Humanity colonies. Yeah, I get a little excited. When I hear you speak, I often think that you're beyond humanity. I wish I could send you to a colony. But There you go. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Don't nag my feelings, Walker. These are my sincere feelings. It's very cruel of you to sort of minimize and sideline my, my deeply held beliefs. Also on Kickstarter is Vengeance Director's Cut. We've been talking about this for a while. It is now up on Kickstarter. I encourage you to give it a look. If you haven't tried Vengeance, if you think think the theme sounds appealing, then you will enjoy the game. If you don't think that the theme sounds appealing, well then, part of you is dead inside and I have great pity for you. Yes, because the game completely incorporates the theme. It's like, you know, total B-movie vengeance. It takes your guy and tells you, you know, puts you through a nightmare scenario of, you know, being punished or tortured and then, and then, you know, the the, you know, montage of you, you know, working yourself up, getting ready to fight, and then the fight happens. It's a fantastic game. Can't wait to play it more. All right, I got excited, Mark. I saw that World of Warcraft Blizzard okay. was going to team up with Asmodee. I saw this too, yeah. And they're going to make a new World of Warcraft game. And I was so excited. <laughs> and then I continued reading, and then there was a yawn that actually hurt my face. Because it was like... This new small world game fits our World of Warcraft world perfectly great. Well, I had the yawn the moment I saw that there was more World of Warcraft stuff. I didn't know uh, that you... First of all, I, I have to assume that in this game, uh, there is some sort of global rule in the rulebook that you're not allowed to criticize China. And if anybody does, then they immediately lose the game. That was a that was a little bit of a politics joke with respect to Blizzard right there. Wow. We, we, we keep we keep we keeps it current, but yeah, small. <laughs> so small world of Warcraft. Whatever you think about small world, I like small world. Yeah, I, it's I think great. It's, it's 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 a but fine game. It's already out, Mark. It's already out, and it's already pretty generic. In fact, it, it kind of makes fun of itself, to tr- and it kind of adopts a slightly more whimsical theme. Small world underground has more compelling and slightly more original settings and, and races. But when I think what Small World needs is not more generic fantasy representations. And so I can only imagine how painfully generic yet another version of orcs versus yet another version of elves, blah, blah, blah. Oh, like, don't forget I, dwarves now. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, dwarves too. Right, oh, right, yeah, right. Of course, yeah, of course. Don't forget that. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I too am not particularly enthused about this new version of Small World. By the time you hear this... The new game by Blacklist Games, Hour of Need, will be up on Kickstarter. I'm uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm optimistic because it looks like their superhero universe might have some depth to it. This is the sort of superhero version of the modular deck system that was in Street Masters and Brook City and Ultra Quest. Uh, the problem is, though, and honestly, I think the timing is unfortunate, and I don't know to what extent this is the fault of Blacklist Games. I don't know to what extent this is the fault of their fulfilling partners or what. 
But the fulfillment for Street Master's Aftershock is currently ongoing. And setting aside the fact that I feel very personally aggrieved that I have not yet received a shipping notification, it is the case that people who have received their pledges, there's a very large number of people that have incomplete pledges. In point of fact, it looks like everyone in the U.S. at certain tiers are missing a large percentage of stretch goals. It's hard to tell because you only have scattered reports of people on on message boards and so forth, but it looks like that there have been some serious shipping snafus, and many, many backers are not whole. Now, Blacklist has pledged that that enough was produced, that this is merely a shipping problem, that everyone will become whole, but I can only speak from past experience. When I notified them that I was missing some stuff from my actual Streetmasters pledge, this was about a year ago, it took months to send me the replacements, and I only needed a couple cards. Well, maybe this stuff that people are missing is sitting in the warehouse and it's only going to take a couple weeks, but the the timing is bad. The timing is awkward. Launching your new Kickstarter project right in the middle of a rolling disaster of fulfillment, again, no matter whose fault it is, it looks like they're stretched pretty thin and this is going to cause a delay of people being made whole on their initial shipments. So who knows what's going to happen? My primary hope in terms of the game hour of need is that they don't overcomplicate the modular deck system. That's what I didn't like about Brook City. That's what I didn't like about Ultra Quest. And it looks like hour of need might actually be simpler than Street Masters. So whether it's sufficiently engaging for my taste, who knows? But I, as I say, I'm cautiously optimistic. Now, this is an awkward growing pain for a company and how they manage this. The fulfillment at the same time as launching this project, I don't know. So I'm going to be very curious to see how the next couple of weeks are going to work for Blacklist and the Sadler Brothers. But uh, that's Hour of Need from Blacklist Games. Nice. Teotihuacan is a game that we both enjoy. It's getting yet another expansion. So other people must like it. This one is called Teotihuacan Shadow of she Trey. It adds 10... What, not not the mid-pre-classic period? No, no, I know. This one, <laughs> they've actually decided, hey, we're going to make this sound title a little more exciting in the box, way smaller. <laughs> so this one's just going to add 10 new technologies and 10 new starting tiles to the game. So new technologies are nice. Starting tiles, I'm sure, will be just to incorporate some new stuff. So anyway, more stuff for Teotihuacan is good for me. That is, I'm glad that they're leveraging particularly that modularity of Teotihuacan. I actually underestimated the modularity of Teotihuacan when we first played it, and I was completely thrilled by the fact that the first expansion gets to mess with the action spaces, because all the action spaces are free-floating tiles. And you can completely alter the core mechanics of the game, or at least the core economy of the game, just by altering those tiles. And so I, they're not going to be doing that with this new expansion, it sounds like, but... It means that the game has more legs than I initially gave it credit for, so kudos to them. Looking for more on Teotihuacan. Finally, Spielworks is the company that launched a Kickstarter for a reprint of Demacher, one of the seminal Euro games of yesteryear, one of the first sort of longer Euro games by Karl Heinz Schmiel. And apparently they have decided to start us a, a little line of games by Karl Heinz Schmiel, reprints especially. And the next one they're going to be working on is Tribune. Tribune is my favorite worker placement game of all time. And given that there are roughly 5 million worker placement games, that's no small thing. And apparently very much like Demacher, they're going to be reworking it with input from Karl Heinz Schmiel. Now, to what extent it's going to be their designers or, or Mr. Schmiel himself, who's to say, but I'm very interested in looking forward to that, and they're going to integrate the expansion, which is great, because I think the Tribune really profits from its uh, expansion, the the, the Brutii expansion, fiddled with the victory conditions a little bit in ways that were very, very salutary. Anyhow, if you haven't tried Tribune, I I suggest you give it a try. 
It's well worth your time, and it's a very, very tight, very competitive, very player-interactive worker placement game, which is not always something you can say about that particular aspect of Euro genre gaming. And it's heavily out of print, but uh, not for long. So I think that's great news, and I'm looking forward to more output by Spielworks and Carl Schmiel because I love Carl Schmiel. That is the news, Mark, and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to our topic, which I've decided it's going to be called Clash of Cultures. What do I mean by this? Yeah, so, so why have you chosen a title that, number one, is already the name of a game, and number two, you already have to explain for it to make any sense at all to well, anyone? Just, just the fact I think there's two cultures at work here. Okay. The first, cult, the first culture being... The Jets. The Jets. The second being the Sharks. Exactly. Or the Crips and the... No, that's less... Le- we don't want to touch that. All right. So what I'm talking about is that there is a push to... Del- deluxify or super upgrade or have many expansions on pawn release of games, which makes them more expensive. And then the, on the, and these, sorry, these two things are facts. These aren't opinions. Am I like, I'm, I'm trying to get onto these things where this is not our opinion. <laughs> so take it as you will. And then what we say afterwards are our opinions. And right. So that there is, there is, right, more and more games are getting expansions upon release. More and more games are having a huge number of uh, Kickstarter uh, stretch goals, and there's just more and more in games. On the other hand, there is the push just to buy the next new hot thing. Always keep buying the new thing. Put the old thing on the shelf. Buy the new thing. Every month, buy more games. So what is the point of having these, you know, upgraded, tons of expansion, upgraded games, if all you're going to be doing is putting them on your shelf and buying the next thing anyway. Why not just have a, a more lightly produced game that that uh, concentrates more on the rules? See, what, I, what one, of my, one of my points are is that they seem to be concentrating more on what's in the box and how great the components are in the box. And look at all this stuff you're getting with it. And look, we have all these shiny expansions already for it. But they don't say, this is a fantastic rule set. These are the really <laughs> interesting mechanisms. And this is how they work together. Okay, well, well, let's separate out the marketing, first of all. Because, yes, I mean, marketing is always going to focus on the tangible. The internet is a visual medium. And you're going to splash lots of pictures of things. Absolutely fine. I'd like to draw a distinction between two things that you've talked about that you've elided. And I respect the fact that they're similar in some degree, but I think that they're different in many more important other ones. And that is, I think that there is a difference between a game that at launch has a whole bunch of expansions that are gameplay additions. And we can talk about the relative merits of that, because of course there are pitfalls to that as well, versus the games that have purely upgraded components. Now, they tend to, I can understand why they, they tend to occupy the same thought, because many of the games that have a million expansions at launch tend to be miniatures-based games or what have you, and so it's often just a lot of minis. But when I think of a game like, and let's, let's pick one of the paradigmatic examples of this sort of modularity, whatever Simon is flogging most recently. So currently they're, they're flogging the uh, second edition of Zombicide or the second edition of modern Zombicide, despite the fact that there have already been, what, four previous... No, three previous versions of Zombicide, but this is second edition somehow. And... Only because they refuse to publish our Zombabees edition. <laughs> and it's the, not... It's just not right. The truth is out there. Zombabees are real. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Sorry, sorry to do Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Zombicide Kickstarter 
very much like many other Simon things, is going to come with a whole bunch of expansions right away. I'm more okay with that than what I would broadly lump together as the metal coin phenomenon. That I find a little bit more problematic, for reasons that that I'm going to try to explain. When I sit down to a well-managed game with lots of modularity, and I think that Zombicide, for whatever its problems, and I'm not a huge fan of Zombicide, many of the versions I think are, are, are boring and kind of silly, but at the very least, that is the kind of game that you can scale up infinitely with no problems. You can have 20 million characters out the box, and whether you play with all those characters or not, a consumer is going to benefit from that additional choice, whether they play the game once or whether they play the game 50 times. They're going to benefit from having that additional character choice. They're going to benefit from the additional sculpts. They're going to benefit from having a larger pool of, of zombies involved. One can quibble about the fact, and, and this is zombicide specific, that there are, are minor gameplay impacts that you get from having more abominations available and greater figure counts because if you run out of figures, something bad happens, etc. But those are really marginal things. Similarly, if you look at a game like Rising Sun, you can have just more monsters available that may or may not enter every game. You can scale that up to effectively an infinite amount. You understand what I'm saying? I do. On the other hand, I wonder how many sets of metal coins a gamer needs. Because I look, it seems to be endemic in the case of Euro games, where you don't have that same kind of scalability, where you can't generate an infinite number of modular expansions very easily, probably in part because the balance is more important. I mean, one of the reasons why you get to have an infinite variety in Zombicide is because it doesn't really matter, because you can design something that's out of whack, and it's okay. But in a finely calibrated Euro game, you, you have a little bit less leeway. And... I, I tried to look up for when I, I really feel this this started. And the first time I really noticed it, actually, was when Scythe was in Kickstarter in 2015. And I looked at it, and upon launch, now the prices have changed somewhat post-launch, but upon launch at the Kickstarter, $59 was going to get you the game. And you could pay $21 each for the quote-unquote realistic resources and the metal coins. So 42 bucks for component upgrades and $59 for the game itself. That's the part where I think things are weird and where the market isn't really speaking to me and, and to my priorities. When I first got Scythe, people were like, oh, why didn't you get the coins? Why didn't you get the resource? I still don't have those things, even though I, I think the game is good. It's not one of my favorites like yours, but I, I, I still like it. And that's because my answer then is the same as it is now. I can get ga- I can get one and a half games for that much money. And the part where I think it's problematic is where you're expected to pony up this money before you know if the game is any good. That's where I'm having problems as well. Right. Why don't you elaborate on that part? Well, that's what I'm just saying is that that you don't even know if you up like you're getting an upgraded game and you don't even know if you like it yet. Like these things can be saved for like a reprint or the second edition. If the game does that well, then you know once you know it's an established and you know it's proven itself, then you know it can come out in another edition and have these upgraded components or a secondary you know market like some these other places do. I agree. I, I, it's, it's especially problematic again for me for the sort of, uh, resource upgrades. And it's also strange when I see people pledging for or buying fancy inserts before they've actually played the game, because to me, I don't know what component upgrades I want until I've played the game. I don't know what's functional yet. It's kind of like, I was imagining the, the, the parallelism to this. It's kind, it would be kind of like giving a box 
uh, a brand new unpunched game to somebody who's never played the game and never read the rules and told them to organize and sort the components. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they need. They don't know what's salient. They don't know what's what's important. Similarly, when I haven't played a game before and they tell me, oh, well, you know, these 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 resources are going to be look like this. I pa- One of the reasons why I passed on the upgraded resources for Psy that I'm still glad is the color matching wasn't as good. You know, the color matching between the resources isn't good. So in the moment there's a functionality step back, I'm very easy easily able to pass on the extra expense. And honestly... Uh, the, the the only time when I've seen people really get excellent mileage out of these kinds of upgraded components are the train gamers who always carry around excellent poker chips, right? If you've got a good set of poker chips and you're in a position where you use that in any game that has money, then that's great, and I respect that. I don't. I'm not in that position. I'm not a hardcore train gamer, and I don't really. I have a set of poker chips, but I just don't remember, or I'm not inclined to bring along an extra box every time I've got anything with currency. Because the ergonomics really, really matter to me. And that, that that's the ultimate upshot for one of the reasons why I don't really like these upgraded things. I don't know what ergonomically is an upgrade for me until I've played the game a number of times. And I agree, if, if the only availability, the only option to get these upgraded versions is before you've played it, then that's an unfortunate market pressure. I just want to go back to like the CMON template where you have like upteen number of characters and upteen number of expansions before they come out. But they tend to just seem same. They're all the same. Like the the difference in all these different characters is so minimal because they've already because they do some play testing, right? They have this these set stats. One hopes. Well, I'm just saying they have these set uh, skills. Like they're in the book. All of these skills are in the book, and then you know they're you know numbered stats, and they just sort of like mix these up and you know spread them across all the characters. They all seem roughly the same because the game is not completely tested, right? It's not out in the field where they have thousands of people playing it and finding the, the loopholes. So when you have these games that have multiple expansions with no real, I don't want to say real testing because these guys do play test the games, but when you, the difference between play testing in house or with, you know, hundreds of gaming groups is way different than when you start putting out in the mass market with thousands of plays. I don't, people often make this point and I think that in many cases it's legitimate, but I often think that it's overblown because very often it's just predicated on an assumption that the more quantities involved, it, ha- it can't have been balanced properly. And I really think it depends. You have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Oh, no, no, no. that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's definitely uh, balanced properly, but it's just – it's done in such a safe way where if it came oh, out – it's when they if it comes out after the fact, they can take more chances because it's tested more. It's just so generic. Like it's these are all these skills that's well tested, well balanced, and then we'll just you know do a nice even spread across the characters because we know they all work. Whereas if you know it's been out there and tested, they can do a little bit more and make them more interesting and different. Okay, well in a in a, in a light, relatively silly co op game like Zombicide. It doesn't matter all that much, and primarily what you're leveraging is visual differentiation, no, which true, is fine. True, true, I'm not. Yeah, but I don't want to specify just Zombicide. I'm just saying yeah. this can be this can be used for almost anything, right? And and this isn't exclusively a Kickstarter phenomenon, right? No, no, not at all. Because when I think of of overproduced games and sometimes how the cost of production really gets away with these things, I, I tend to think actually. Uh, the comparison that, that springs to mind for me is Too Many Bones versus Assault on Doomrock. Two games that I both like, two games that are even in a similar genre. They're in a co-op fantasy adventure thing with lots of lots of, of tactical combat. And they both try to do relatively abstracted things with respect to movement. And 
Assault of Doomrock actually was uh, I, I heard it was available at Spiel for twenty bucks, which is you know some one of the best gaming buys you'll ever do if if that was uh, if you ha- you have that open to you. But not only is it the case that a game of too many bones is going to set you back three, four, five, maybe six times as much as a game of uh, Assault on Doomrock. Too many. Bo- I, I've I've complained about this before. The components of too many bones are less functional in many ways. I still hate those stupid plastic cards. They're too slippery. I think that the stacks of chips are, are less functional than a lot of, of tokens. But the, the thing is, having repeated all those complaints again, none of this has to do with the funding model. It has to do with the component priorities of the people involved. Assault on Doomrock was created with a relatively utilitarian idea with respect to how to do components. And they're functional, and they're attractive, and they work. On the other hand, you have something like Too Many Bones, which is driven by a company called Chip Theory Games, so they're obsessed with chips and neoprene mats and all that other stuff. And when the form over function starts to take the, the priority, whether it's Kickstarter, whether it's anywhere else, that's where I start to check out. And I think that's what's driving a lot of these cost pressures. I don't think it's the funding model necessarily. I think it's just a different vision of what components should look like and how they should work. And I don't know if this is a generational thing in terms of gamers, whether we're the curmudgeons and we're slightly out of step. I don't know if you're just being a hypocrite because I've seen you spring for metal coins and weird no, mats no, and all this stuff. Get, I know. I'm going to come back. Say I, I have been very negative, but I have tons of good points. I just started off negative. I'm just saying that this is how you know the, the topic started. I have some good points as well. But that's that's what getting but back getting back to what you said. I have sort of a line here. Is, that, is this is this what the market wants or is this what the market gave birth to? Right. So is this what people actually want? Do they want upgraded parts or is this just what the the industry has evolved into in order to make money? Oh, I see. So as in like we always say, uh, you know, well, if the if the if the market supports it, then they obviously want it. But is is that actually true? I don't know. People are willing to attribute anything and everything to fear of missing out. You know, anytime any Kickstarter project launches, they say, oh, you know, this is just FOMO, ground amok, blah, 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 blah. And again, I think you have to evaluate on a case-by-case basis, be a little bit more nuanced. The, the only the only area of the hobby that I think is is really out of control is the fact that any game that comes out pretty much on Kickstarter, and even many games that don't come out on Kickstarter, you can pay an extra 20 bucks for metal coins. How many sets of metal coins does a gamer need? I don't I was say back in the day we had, uh, we had, uh, we had uh, what was the game? It was uh, Conquest of the Empire, the second reprint by Eagle Griffin Games. They had this huge, you know, set of awesome plastic coins. We ha- we used to have them out of the box and to the side, and we'd use those for almost every game because. And then we didn't have a need to do that anymore because you know these games now come out with such deluxe coins that we don't need to use these fancy coins anymore. Yeah, I've never, I've never, I, I respect the impulse. Now, some people, and occasionally you see Kickstarters for this where people say, buy this one set of coins and use it for every game for the rest of your life. And I respect that impulse. It just seems to me, unless, as I say, you're a train gamer and you know that pretty much every game you play is going to involve lots of computation with these things, I don't want to have to think and figure, you know, turn every board game into effectively the administrative load of a tabletop miniatures game, where I have to say, well, I need this and I need this and I need this other thing and I got to put this other thing in the bag and I need to make sure I bring this up to the game table. No. One of the great things about a board game is it comes in a single box and you're done. And I do not like the additional administrative load of having to worry about something peripheral on top of that but maybe that's just me agreed all right so my other line here is you might find your soul game so much like we said not everyone loves lords of hellas but i love lords of hellas i do too and 
and it is, falls exactly into what we're talking about. It's this giant, huge production with ridiculous components that there was no other way for this game to come to life unless it came out the way it did. And I think Lords of Hellas is a good example of a product line that has expansions that scale well and expansions that don't scale well. So though the ones that scale well are the, are the different gods. You can just mix and match the gods, take three random gods, and that's going to be the, the, the one that constitutes your, your blessings deck, and they're going to change slightly how part of the gods work. That's fine. No rules overhead can be swapped in and out very easily. You don't have to worry about it too much. Then there are some of the modules that are that are that you have to add deliberately and carefully, and then there are some modules that I don't think I'm ever going to try, plainly. And whether that was driven by the funding model or not, I, I can be charitable and assume that it was driven by the funding model, uh, or at least I can be cynical and assume that it was driven by the funding model, or I can be charitable and assume that it was driven by some passion on the part of the creators, what have you. But I think that if you look at the range of expansions available for Lords of Hellas, you see the gamut from easily swappable to a little bit too cumbersome. The, the part that I really like in terms of how the hobby is developing is the kinds of third-party companies that will sell you upgrade kits or specialized tokens for games that have been in print for a while so you know what you're actually getting. If I wanted to get upgraded components for Teotihuacan, for example, there are companies that would sell me that, and it's a known quantity. I've played the game. I don't have to decide up front while the, before the game is published whether I want the retail version at 45 bucks or the deluxe one at 90 That choice I don't. I don't like, but being able to, to, to buy peripherals for it after the fact is, is great. And this is one of the reasons why I wish we had access to a 3D printer, because the 3D printing community is also really, really good at doing this kind of thing after the game hits the wild. All right. That being said, my next, that feeds into my next line. Where is it? Is it the only way? So let's take a look at Pantheon Mythic Battles. It is the only way that game would come alive as if it came out with this giant thing all at once, all at the beginning, right? Because there's no way that I don't think that game could get off the ground in its field where there's so many, you know, two versus battling games and give you that feel of this huge world that you can draw from unless it all came out at once at the beginning. Yeah, it's weird. And yet at the same time, it grew out of a chit and card based game called Mythic Battles. Mythic Battles came out a few years previously, primarily through, again, the, the, the French designers and publisher, and it didn't go very far. And then it comes out with slight rules tweaks and massive miniatures, and suddenly it's a multi-million dollar product line. So I, I agree with you that clearly it's, it's benefited from the, the splash, and it's also benefited from the components because some of the rules changes have been driven by the component changes. And in that case, it's it's a case of function driving form rather than the other way around. But maybe I'm just a sucker and I've just been <laughs> overcome by the giant god minis. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like a sucker. So I think the only thing I haven't covered out of all my lines is the fact that it causes delays and rules problems, right? Because... Once it hits these huge, you know, Kickstarter goals or, you know, huge extra things, or it usually leads to them having to go out to a third party to get these metal coins or send something out to get them, you know, silk screened or whatever, and they always come back wrong or whatever. So it leads to huge delays in production, or they've had all these extra expansions, so it doesn't, you know, fit into the rules. We've, you know, we've thought of this before where they, we think they've incorporated 
game mechanics that were left off the board because they thought they didn't work, but brought them back as stretch kicker Kickstarter goals, you know, and sort of pried them back in again, and therefore, you know, sort of messes with the rules and you know messes the rule book up. It's true. Of course, one of the other big causes for delays, especially recently, is the tendency to produce an omnibus box that will hold everything. And I love those. <laughs> <laughs> the big box. The big box. Again, in the same way that I don't want to take a box of a game and the separate box for this for the separate coins, I don't care how big or heavy the box is. If you can put it all in one box, I'm there. And that tends to cause massive production delays as well. So regardless of how they handle it. Mostly, I just wish... That actually dovetails my, my my overall desire. I just want things to be as functional as they possibly can be. And we were talking previously about game trays. And the thing about game trays is very often they don't organize things well. You have to engage in a little bit of Tetris in order to get everything to fit because the lid won't close. Because everything is packed so tightly. We've encountered that a couple times in either game trays, specifically branded stuff, or other kinds of special inserts that were either stretch goals or third-party peripherals or whatever. I look at broken token inserts, and half of them I look at and say, this does not seem more functional than just organizing things by baggies. In fact, it looks less functional than things with baggies. And that's my overall problem. We talked about this in the context of Rurik Dawn of Kiev, what we reviewed last week. It has marvelously functional trays, but we worried about metal coins because if metal coins don't stack perfectly, then they're might be a problem. So again, I don't really care what the components look like if they are not functional. Yeah, let's go into Sentinels of the Multiverse, just because, you know, it came to mind when you're talking about you don't care how big the box is. Would you instantly buy this b- big box again? I was going to say, there's no question in my mind that, that having everything in one box and the way they organize it makes the game so much easier to play and accessible to me. Well, it was already the case that Sentinels of the Multiverse, for us, was not a portable game anyhow. It was not the kind of thing that you could throw into a bag and take somewhere. It is now purely a trunk and in-home type experience. So not for people with bikes and not for people using public transit and not for people who walk to game night. So you've lost no functionality, but instead you've got everything organized uh, uh, clearly. So yeah, at the end of the day, I'm always amazed at the kind of expense that people will throw to make a game less functional than it was before, just on the basis of aesthetics. That's the only part of the current market that I think is truly perverse. The rest, I am more than willing to put up with. People talk about how, oh, I don't like all stretch goals because none of them are ever properly playtested. I roll my eyes and I, I, I figure they're exaggerating. People decry the fact that every game seems to need to have miniatures. I roll my eyes and think they're exaggerating because minis often do provide an additional visual appeal. And there are companies like Chip Theory Games that overproduce games without minis. But so often I find these these steps back in terms of functionality. I do not get it. It's true, but let's take a quick look. I know we're trying to wrap up, but let's go back to Rourke that we just played and the fact that it's a very Euro-looking game. And then out of nowhere, you have these these uh, hero characters, like full minis, right? And as soon as I looked at it, I thought it was totally out of place. But then when you, when you play the game, it... it it makes you invested. Like that is your character. That is your leader. And I think it puts you in the game more than it would if it's just a wooden chip. Yeah. You, you don't need to sell me on minis. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pro minis in Euro games where they're appropriate. I'm pro minis in actual minis games, but there's a lot of people, I think in their disgust over how expensive and how overproduced the hobby is becoming latch onto something out of context. And you see a lot of anti mini sentiment 
the assumption that any game with miniatures has to be shallow and un- unengaging or necessarily a certain kind of game. And again, you have to make sure that the components match the context, lead to the right kind of play experience, communicate the right set of information. And I think Rurik is a good example of a Euro game that benefits from the minis in terms of, of, of ease of production and ease of use. True. I just thought it was so, very odd how these two things just clashed together. The fact that we just spent most of that segment talking about the upgraded parts of games and the fact that they just, they are the the culture is to th- put them on the shelf and play the, the thing that came out this week anyway. Sure. Well, but the, just circling back to, uh, again, this notion of sometimes the overproduction serves a purpose. Era Medieval Age. You could make Era Medieval Age with a dry erase board and a marker, theoretically. Would you want to? Absolutely not. It would be fiddly. It would be difficult to remember which building was what. It would be difficult to remember what shape was what. You'd have to be erasing things and moving things around. It would be a nightmare. And so is it a shame that the game is incredibly expensive? Yes. Do you understand why it is the way that it is? Yes. It is the most functional version of itself that it could be while being very pretty at the same time. So is it do I wish the hobby were more accessible financially? Sure, but there are lots of cheap and and, and uh, visually stunning and novel games. But at the same time, there's also things like Era Medieval Age. And so in that sense, I think the market's doing pretty well. Agreed. Well, on that note of agreement, that's going to close it out for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for Silver and Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the Silver and Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoeseiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.